0: Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. So, you might notice something a little bit different. Now, with the stay-at-home orders, with coronavirus, it's, you know, hampered my ability to get out and travel and go to conferences and meet people in person, which is how all our other podcasts have been done. So, we're venturing out into the virtual podcast, so please forgive us if there are any technical difficulties in sound and and in the video quality. You know, we, we do our best to make the best viewing and listening experience for our audiences and hopefully we've succeeded and we'll continue to refine it. But um, today's guest is Diet Doctor's very own Adele Height. So Adele has an MPH and an RD degree from the University of North Carolina where she also started a PhD program in nutritional epidemiology. But interestingly, as you'll learn, she questions authority. She questions everything and her um, thesis was about raised a lot of questions about the dietary guidelines and she then found it difficult to um, find someone to work with to help her continue getting her PhD. So she actually switched gears and instead went to NC State where she got a PhD in communication, rhetoric and digital media still with her thesis about the dietary guidelines. So what it comes down to though is she probably has spent more time researching the dietary guidelines and knows more about the dietary guidelines than just about anybody. But this podcast isn't just about the dietary guidelines because what I really love about Adele is she questions everything. And as you learned, it's not just what she does now, she's done this her whole life. She questions authority, she wants to know why we believe what we believe and what the implications of our beliefs are. And that goes to so much of the mythology that is present in nutrition in general, including low-carb mythology. So we talk a lot about... Um, sort of the different aspects of mythology that we all need to be a little bit more aware of. Um, You know, if you want flashy sound bites, this isn't for you. If you want um, a deeper, more thoughtful investigation of all the things we believe and talk about, then this is for you. That's Adele's specialty. So whether you see her on dietdoctor.com, on her own website or on her Twitter feed, uh, you're going to get an in-depth and very cerebral and thorough evaluation. So, be ready to see things from a new perspective and maybe open your eyes a little bit more with this podcast with Adele Height. Adele Height, thank you so much for joining me on our Diet Doctor podcast today.
1: Thanks, I'm delighted
0: to be here. Well, this is this is a first because we are both diet doctor team members, so first for me actually interviewing a diet doctor team member, but you are you're so much more than that. And and in diet doctor, I have to say, you sort of serve the purpose, and I mean this with all respect, as the bulldog. You're, you, <laughs> which I love. You are the one who doesn't take any nonsense. You don't take anything on face value. you question you question every statement. you want you, you in your core, you know things need to be defensible. And we need to be able to back up what we say. And I, I love that about you. And I think you make so many wonderful contributions to Diet Doctor from that standpoint. So I so I have to ask you, have you have you always been like this? Is this part of just your personality that you've always questioned what people tell you and, and need to prove it?
1: It actually it is. Um I got in a fair amount of trouble as a child because this was my personality. I got tossed out of Sunday school when I was about 10. Um, because I kept asking questions that I think made the Sunday school teacher uncomfortable because she didn't have answers for them. Or she kept giving the same answer, which that wasn't satisfying to me. And I didn't mean to be obnoxious. I actually wanted to know how they knew so that I could know too. And she couldn't give me a satisfactory answer. And she told my mother that I probably shouldn't come back. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a great story. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so this clearly is ingrained into who you are. <laughs> and, and now this led you through many paths to an MPH, an RD, and then a PhD. And tell us what your PhD thesis was on.
1: My PhD thesis was on the dietary guidelines for Americans and how we define healthy diet.
0: So chances are you've spent more time than just about anybody Diving into the guidelines to see exactly what's in them and all the specific details and permutations of the guidelines throughout time. Would you say that's pretty accurate?
1: I would say that's pretty accurate. Um, Gary Tobbs and Nina Teicholds know a great deal about the science aspects of of the guidelines, like what science was available and and the science that wasn't really um, represented as as much in the guideline uh, as other science, but I don't think that they know as much about the actual guidelines policy as I do. And that's a, it's a, those are different things um, because the guidelines aren't just about the science. If they were just about the science, we would have different guidelines, but they're not. They're about politics, it's in, it's in the word. Policy involves politics and these guidelines certainly involve a lot of politics.
0: Hmm. So that's interesting. So it's, it's more than science. It's definitely with politics. And then that can change sort of how we interpret them or what we what we think they're
1: supposed to be doing, I guess is one way to say it. Right. And especially those of us in the low-carb community really have this, um, I think, this idea. And it's it's a good idea that if we pile up enough science if we just keep piling it up and piling it up, that eventually the guidelines will have to change because they'll have to recognize that science. But my research says that the biggest influence on any edition of the guidelines is, surprise, the previous edition of the guidelines. And that started with the second edition of the guidelines. I mean, this is not something new. Mm. When the first edition was created in 1980, when the second edition, they, there was still a lot of pushback from a lot of scientists and a lot of industry players about the guidelines at that point in time. But even by then in 1985, the, the folks who wrote that set of guidelines said, look, we have to acknowledge the fact that people are already using these guidelines in public health and in, um." You know, to, to create menus and public schools. They're they're using these guidelines. These are out there. And if we change them dramatically, it's gonna confuse the public. So already the guidelines were saying we're too conservative to really follow science. That was in nineteen eighty five. Wow.
0: And so they, they sort of admitted that they couldn't follow the science in in a way. Yeah. Yeah, From and, the beginning, they did. But it sounds like now and, they don't admit that. Now it sounds like they're trying to claim they're following the science, but they're sort of picking their own science <laughs> that they want to follow.
1: Well, yes, because something happened between 1980 and, say, about 1990, and I bet you know what it is. We discovered that Americans were not getting healthier that they were actually becoming more obese and we were seeing these rapid rises in metabolic diseases. And that began to dawn on us as a nation. The public health community knew about it first and probably the biggest paper on it got published in 1994, but there were hints of it before then. And so there was already some warning in the early 1990s that there was, instead of a healthy America, an obesity crisis. And this really changed things. Um, and I, I think that we have to recognize that the guidelines as they are enacted from about 1990 on are different guidelines from the first two editions, 1980 and 1985. So one of the things that, that people don't know about the history of the dietary guidelines is that the first couple of editions of the dietary guidelines should be considered very differently from later editions. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is there wasn't even a mandate for, for the guidelines to exist until the third, the, uh, I'll correct that, the fourth edition of the guidelines. So the first three editions of the guidelines were written sort of out of um, organizational or institutional inertia. He mm-hmm. created some in 1980 they'll create some again in 85, and they created some again in 1990. The ones that were created in 1995 were the ones that were fully created under an actual mandate or an actual law.
0: But by that However, point, it was already kind of clear that the guidelines had not achieved what they were set out to achieve.
1: That This is true. And we started to discover that um, in the early 1990s. It was sort of interesting because So my PhD is in um, communication rhetoric and digital media. And that means that I look at how these guidelines are portrayed um, across different mediums. So when the newspapers are talking about America and diets and healthfulness and, People taking up healthy habits from about 1975 till the 1990s, all of the headlines and stories talk about Americans getting healthy Mm -hmm. and eating healthy and exercising. And there's, it really sounds as if Americans have taken up this diet and they've taken up the idea of managing your health through eating right and exercising right. And then The um, our national health surveys for for eating start to go through the populations and actually measure people, and they're finding the uh, National Institutes of Health. uh, I think the survey, uh, I'm sorry, the Center for um, Disease Control, this the big survey came out in 1994. Um, Catherine Flegel was on there along with some other folks whose names I can't remember right now, but it showed. That Americans were not getting healthier, they were getting fatter and sicker. Which brings us to and, the
0: big point. Wait, I need to interrupt you there because that's such an important yeah. point. Cause that brings us to the point that so many people make that the dietary guidelines made us fat and made us sick. Right. We hear that time and time again. Now, how do you respond to that type of a <laughs> statement?
1: Well, I, I, I'll tell you um, the typical response that you would get from a dietitian is, they can't have made us fat and sick, nobody followed them. So, however, what you really need to know is that both statements are ecological fallacies. Okay. Just and that's explain. a big fancy word. That's a big fancy word that means you're looking at a population level exposure, which is a policy. And then you're trying to fallaciously tie it to individual behaviors. So um, it would be hard to say that the level of rainfall that a country gets um, makes people more sedentary. Although it might because you don't want to go outside, but that's not, that's, trying to take a population level exposure and tie it to whether or not an individual is willing to go outside in the rain. Do you see the problems with that? I do. So whenever somebody either blames the guidelines or lets the guidelines off the hook for this, they're not looking at the right thing. They're, they're trying to tie this to an individual behavior. You either followed the guidelines and you got fat or you didn't follow the guidelines and you got fat. And both statements are probably not true. Now, so, for any...
0: Go, go ahead. Yeah, so so I guess the first question is, did the country as a whole follow the guidelines? And depending on who you listen to, the answer is yes, they clearly did because the percent of fat that Americans ate went down or they clearly didn't because the total calories went up and the total calories of fat did not go down, even though the percent went down. So is there a right <laughs> answer or are they, I mean, they're both sort of right.
1: Um, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. It depends on what you wanna say. If you want to say, well, Americans were eating a low fat diet and you point to the percentages, sure, that's gonna look like a low fat diet because it's lower in fat percentage wise than what we were eating before. But if you want to say the words, Americans were eating less fat, you can't say that. <laughs> so it's a very interesting that,
0: differentiation that most people don't yeah. care to think sort of in that that degree. And then I guess the other part though, to say whether the, it was the guidelines that worked or didn't work, was the guidelines also did ask for reduced sugar intake, which of course the country did not do. Um, so the other part is though, did the guidelines create an atmosphere that promoted obesity and diabetes and weight gain because they created an atmosphere of promoting a diet that didn't work for most people because simply because they couldn't stick to it and because it opened the door for industry to rush in and promote so-called mm-hmm. healthy foods that were full of carbohydrates and full of calories? like so that's the other take on these guidelines, right?
1: Okay, so you that was a whole lot in there. And let me see if I can pull that apart. Okay. So, yes, the dietary guidelines definitely gave some sectors of the food industry a, a leg up. Absolutely. And this is why you see when the dietary goals were created by by the McGovern Committee, the meat people and the egg people had special hearings to push back against these goals because they knew that the corn people and the wheat people and the um, vegetable oil people were going to have a marketplace advantage that they were not going to have. Um, And they they realized that they were not gonna be able to advertise their foods as healthy in the same way as these other sectors of the marketplace. Now, by the time 1985 and 1990 rolled around, many of those other sectors of the marketplace realized that they actually could um market food as healthy that they couldn't market that way in the in in previous years. The beef people started creating leaner cattle and um, ground beef was made in lean varieties and fattier varieties and the lean varieties were more expensive. Do you remember that big um uproar about pink slime <laughs> um a few years back? Right, pink slime was actually, at the time it was invented, a a benefit to the consumer because it made meat leaner. It was a way of taking the trimmings of beef and using them to make leaner meat. And and that's what, what consumers wanted. They wanted lean beef, they wanted lean poultry, they wanted lean pigs, and we were able to breed those pigs so that you got pork chops that had no fat on them. Yeah. Um, so this is re- this right. is a
0: really important point because it shows how the guidelines have affected much more Absolutely. than just what an individual puts in their mouth. It affects how we grow our foods, how we raise our cattle, how we raise our animals, it affects... How we breed them. Sorry? How we breed them. How we how breed we them, breed. right. Yeah. And yeah. what our kids eat in school and what grandma eats in her retirement home and what the military eats. So it it, it filtered down and it filtered to nutritionists and physicians. I mean, at no point you could say, does it say physicians and nutritionists have to recommend a low-fat diet? But at the same time, it seems like there's been a lot of pushback for those who don't in certain situations and the major governing bodies of, you know, cardiology and endocrinology that have said this is the right diet to follow. So, in a way, if if the dietary guidelines were not... How do you say this? The dietary guidelines were meant for the healthy population. Right. That's one point that we that frequently is made. But it got um, extrapolated to everybody, to all nutritionists and all physicians by this top-down effect and every aspect of our society, but yet they didn't work. And so how do we okay, phrase well, that? Hold on, okay. hold on.
1: Uh, you have to you have to acknowledge a step before then, okay. Which is that the dietary guidelines as we see them now. Were initially meant for a clinical population, so the American Heart Association had some views about what type of diet was best for people who were at high risk for heart disease or had already by, been diagnosed for heart with heart disease. And so this that was is back a in the 1960s. Fat...
0: You're talking about like back in this the is 60s. This
1: back in the 1960s, right? Okay. Ninth, that was a high um, a, a high carbohydrate, low fat, low cholesterol diet. At the same time. Other physicians were using low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diets to treat obesity and diabetes. Those were already in circulation and being used. Um, At the time, um, you know, uh, Ancel Keys had already distanced himself from the idea that cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, had anything to do with heart disease. And so the fact that we blame low-cholesterol diets on Ancel Keys is sort of silly because he... He was not supporting that that theory at all, but there were a number of people, Mark Hegstead and William Connor, who were. Um, so how, in does, addition. how did that
0: get so misunderstood? Because Ancel Keys clearly did his, his seven country study, and and at that point was promoting the connection between dietary fat, dietary cholesterol, and heart disease. Um,
1: no dietary fat, particularly saturated fat, but he was a he would he did not think that obesity had anything to do with chronic disease, he did not think that, um, that dietary cholesterol had anything to do with it, and of course, he didn't think that dietary sugar um, levels had anything to do with heart disease.
0: But saturated but fat he did.
1: Saturated fat was the bad guy. Okay. But what McGovern's committee did was that they listened to all of these experts with all of these competing theories and they sort of mashed them together in a big pile and the, the biggest reason that the low carb diet sort of didn't get represented in this has to do with politics, not with science. It wasn't that um, the science, and, and everybody in the low carb world knows this, It wasn't that Ansel Keys' can, Ansel Keys's science was stronger than say the science by by Pennington. It had to do with the fact that at that time, America was going through an energy crisis. Um, We had also been warned about global famines. Um, There were all of these other political things going on. Meat was extremely expensive. The first Meatless Monday boycotts were about the price of meat, not to save the animals (laughs) or not for health or anything like that. It was about meat being expensive. So this is apart from the government work on the guidelines in popular... Um, America in in the in the populace, people were already beginning to eat less fat in terms of animal products because one they were expensive and two it was it was just sort of um, it it was uh, what could I say it gave you a kind of um, popular mystique to eat like the Beatles and go vegetarian. <laughs> um, we had Francis Moore LePay's, um diet for a small planet. And there was this sort of cachet to eating it in this way that ended up as the dietary goals and then as the dietary guidelines. And let me just make this very, very clear. This was very much a white, well-educated, upper middle class population that was taking up these habits. And it was a white, professional, upper middle class population that created both the goals And the guidelines, the poorer people in America, low income populations, minority populations were considered targets for these goals and guidelines because the white educated professional folks already knew how to eat. So, so you have to recognize that something else happened in 1980 besides the dietary guidelines. Something very important happened in 1980 and it was called The election of Ronald Reagan and the institution of global economics that focused on marketplace solutions. So, what we had in America, we called it the trickle down economics. And in America, we also have trickle down nutrition, which is a diet that wealthy white people can manage to stay healthier on. And I use that term. In a relative way, is not a diet that you can give or or expect people who don't have as much money to spend on food, don't have as much uh, resources to challenge the the way of thinking there that's that's coming from doctors or dietitians who um, don't have access to free time to exercise off all those extra calories that you get from eating a high carb diet. Do you see what I'm saying? So it wasn't just the switch in how we thought about what was healthy. It was also a switch in the economics in the U.S. And there's still a health divide. All of the repercussions that we see as coming out of the guidelines, and and there are plenty of negative ones. I'm not going to deny that at all but a lot of them have to do with economic circumstances. If you are wealthier, if you're better educated in America, you can almost um, pick your own diet. But if you're not, if you're one of those people who has to rely on government food programs or you're in the military or your kids get their lunches and their breakfasts at school, you are imprisoned by those choices. Hmm. And because you already have less resources for joining a gym, for having extra time to cook farm-fresh meals and whatnot, you are already on a, a worse diet than a lot of other Americans, whether you're fo- fo- following the guidelines or not. So, so, so it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: right. And, and so, this is what's so interesting, right? If I don't think many people, I don't think anybody really, hardly anybody understands it to the level that you understand this. but. Is it important that people understand it to that level, right? Because people want an answer. People want to know what should I eat. So I guess one question is: one, should we even be looking to the government for that? And two, if we are, how do we how do we summarize what the guidelines have and haven't done and what they should be doing?
1: So what the guidelines did, I, I think the 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 most insidious thing that the guidelines did was that they shifted our attention away from population health being the responsibility of institutions, organizations, and corporations, and they made your health your responsibility. And that ideology fits with both low-fat diets, vegan diets, vegetarian diets, carnivore diets, low-carb diets, keto diets, any of these kinds of named diets that you can think of Who is responsible for your health outcomes? You are. And that's what the dietary guidelines did that has been the most insidious and problematic aspect of the whole thing. It has nothing to do with the amount of fat that they recommended. It has to do with the fact that they said, if you do this thing, you can avoid ever getting half a dozen chronic diseases that we can name. And that made that your responsibility. And but doesn't that in a way also
0: else- make it the now the government's responsibility? Because they're saying, we're going to tell you how to eat to be healthy. So it's our responsibility to tell you and it's your responsibility to do it.
1: Right, right. But you notice that that gives them that out. Yeah. Well, if you didn't then you must not, if I look at you and you have a chronic disease, well, you must not have followed the guidelines. If I look at you and you're obese, you must not have followed the guidelines. And if you say, well, I did follow the guidelines and I'm still uh, got diabetes. Do you know what you'll get back in response? You are an unreliable narrator of your experience. (laughs) And so there's always an out because they've made it the individual's responsibility now, what that means is that for those of us who are white, who are educated, who are upper middle class, who have some resources, we can take the, our efforts into our own hands and find a diet that works best for us. And that's what we can and we should do. But in terms of the government telling the rest of the folks who, who are sort of handcuffed to those guidelines... the guidelines need to be eliminated. They need to be completely removed. Um, There needs to be a law written that says, here's what you should do in terms of eating. Go see a nutritionist, go see a doctor, go see someone who can help you find the way to eat that's right for you. And there should be money that pays for that in Medicare and Medicaid and in private health insurance we will never get rid of that gap between poor people, between the health outcomes of poorer people and wealthier people through diet. That It has to do with so much more. So we need, but we do need to start with getting rid of the guidelines and letting everyone find the path that works best for them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great um, conclusion. That's the one thing we can hopefully all agree on about these guidelines is that um, they're not doing anybody any good. Whether we follow them, whether we didn't, whether the low fat was the culprit or whether the guidelines were the culprit, whatever the details, the conclusion sort of always leads to the same road, that they didn't work and it's probably best to get rid of them and leave it to individual practitioners without other bodies like the American Heart Association trying to dictate what what they're supposed to say too, because there, are, I mean, there are programs out there that won't promote low carb because they're f- they're afraid of losing funding or they're afraid of losing a, a certain certification, and um, even if they may personally believe in it, and that, so that type of thing has to go away. And I think the guidelines, as long as they exist, promote that type of thinking. Unfortunately. Um,
1: Right. And they also promote thinking that individuals can manage are responsible for their own health outcomes, which means that the people in Flint, Michigan, got lousy water because our government didn't take it upon themselves to ensure that those people had what they need. Our government is still not taking it upon itself to make sure that everybody gets adequate essential nutrition, which is my bandwagon, you know. We, before we worry about whether whether or not somebody's going to develop heart disease or diabetes in thirty years, we should first be making sure that they get adequate protein and adequate essential vitamins and minerals every single day. But we don't do that because we're so focused on these other things, and it really gets in the way of feeding our population adequately in terms of essential nutrition because. We don't let WIC families, um, that's women's infants and children's, so we won't let them spend that money on eggs, for instance, at the farmer's market, which would be a great thing for a pregnant mommy or a little child to have that protein in their diet. Instead, we worry about the fat or the cholesterol that's in the eggs, and instead we insist that they spend their WIC dollars on produce. Now, I don't have anything against produce, but if you're trying to raise small children, or if you're a pregnant mommy, those eggs are going to be better for you. There's just no way around it. Yeah. So that is a problem. And we've, we've just taken our focus so much over to this idea that fruits and vegetables are magical, and we're going to prevent every disease known to mankind by just stuffing America full of fruits and vegetables, that we, we forget that we need these other things as well, especially... Adequate protein and probably more than what the the guidance says right now.
0: And don't forget the healthy whole grains, of course, too, with their fruits and vegetables. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so, so to me, that speaks
0: for we need to promote more that you are in charge of your health. We're not going to tell you what to do; that you are in charge. But I can see your point that for those who who need assistance from the government, um, they need to be assisted in the correct way, I guess. Whereas it's sort of a an upper class. Benefit to be able to say, I'm in charge and I don't need anybody else's assistance and I should be in charge. Everybody should be in charge, except if you need help, you need to be able to find the right help and that's what the government's not providing.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. By the way, I had like 10 things on my list to talk about that were not guidelines related, but <laughs> you, it's rare to talk to somebody who knows so much about the guidelines in this type of depth. Now, um, one of the things that came out recently that was this fact fiction... Um, Documentary, which I was in, in full disclosure, and I think was wonderful. But you had, and and you wrote a a great review of it, talking about all the wonderful things about it. So we don't, I mean, it was, there are a lot of amazing things in this documentary. But one of the issues you had was the way the dietary guidelines was portrayed. And personally, I don't think it was anything specifically in this documentary because it's just how everybody believes about the dietary guidelines. And and I don't want to rehash it all here. People can go read the post. Um, and I'm actually going to interview um, Jen Eisenhart, who is the creator of the film as well, to talk about her research and what she came up with. But the point being, when something gets passed down so many so often that it just becomes believed and it becomes mythology. Um, they, uh, it seems like that you feel like that really starts to hurt our message and our cause or anybody's message and anybody's cause in terms of what they're trying to promote. And the Dietary Guidelines kind of play an essential role in that, doesn't it?
1: Well, we become incredibly hypocritical when we do that because what we complain about is the fact that this low-fat diet has been accepted and ideas about it like Ansel Keys promoting a low-cholesterol diet have been passed along and passed along. In fact, we've accepted that, I think. And and so these ideas get passed along and nobody takes time to go back and actually look at what happened or what was said or what the data says. And it does hurt our message because there are people who do know and they will use that opportunity of us being wrong about what we say about the dietary guidelines like the dietary you know the low fat diet made us fat well that implies that we actually lowered our fat well we didn't so people will say that it's just like when we say the dietary guidelines made us fat dietitians and others will come back and say no it didn't because nobody followed them and there is evidence that there were many things that were in the dietary guidelines that we didn't actually do so so we have to be accurate so If we want to accomplish what we really want to accomplish, which is for those people who are handcuffed to the dietary guidelines to have better options. So my dream is when anybody walks into a doctor's office with one of the chronic diseases that we know can be addressed through dietary change as an option, that they are given dietary change, a food first opportunity as an option. But in order to do that, we can't replicate the mistakes that they made in 1977 and
0: 1980. Does that make sense? That does. Yes. That does. And so part of that though is thinking that there's any one right diet for somebody, that that this is right. there's one way for everybody to eat. And that's sort of the number one mistake. And so if you say in, in, in the low-carb sphere that everybody should be eating low-carb, you're sort of making the same mistake and instead yep. need to focus more on individualization, which unfortunately though means it's so important who that person is consulting with you, who that person is advising you and you have to get the right person or someone who's at least willing to work with you with different experiments and different versions of nutrition to find the right one for you. Um, and I think that's, what's really lacking out there because right now people are too busy following a cookbook style of what to tell people. Um, but I think we,
1: right. But uh, it it goes, it goes beyond that in that even in the low carb world, we have a default, um, to the idea that what you eat today, we know (laughs) if you eat right today, you can prevent certain health outcomes 20 or 30 years down the road. And we are very good at criticizing the fact that the low carb, I mean, low fat proponents don't have that evidence. You don't have any evidence that eating a low fat diet is gonna prevent heart disease or prevent obesity or prevent diabetes. Well, guess what? Neither do we have that evidence for low carb. We don't have evidence for either of those diets acting as long-term preventative health um, ways of eating. We do have evidence for low carb as a really, really strong and a really, really important intervention for prediabetes and a bunch of other metabolic conditions that we know can be reversed or improved with um, carbohydrate reduction. But if we walk around saying, well, we know <laughs> that low-carb can prevent somebody who doesn't even have any family history of diabetes. We don't know that. right? And the reason that we don't know that is the intervention is not always the same thing as the cause, right? right? So when somebody has an infection, you give them antibiotics, but it wasn't a lack of antibiotics that caused the infection, right? So there are lots and lots of situations like that. We can't just jump to those conclusions and say, well, if... I mean, I think it looks really good for future research that maybe one day we can prove this, and I think that we might be able to, but we can't right now say that if you eat a low-carb diet today, that 20 years from now, you you won't get heart disease or diabetes or any other chronic disease. Which
0: is why the, the, the words we use, the language we use matters, and our recommendation has to be in line, the strength of our recommendation has to be in line with the strength of the evidence. So like right. you said, we can say we don't have that evidence for low-fat um, and we can say it makes sense that low-carb may provide us that evidence because of sort of the shorter-term evidence. So, it should yep. be something that people recommend and talk about and explore And but we cannot say with certainty that it has been proven for long-term outcomes as an intervention. So, that makes a lot of sense. It's not that we can't recommend it, it's that we have to recommend it with the appropriate strength of of recommendation, I guess, to, to back what right. what is known.
1: And I would say that there are diets that are more likely to give you your adequate essential nutrition. I think a low carb diet or a lower carb diet is more likely to do that because carbohydrates are simply not essential. Mm-hmm. And we if we are filling people's plates with calories that don't provide other kinds of nutrition then they're getting a lot of calories, which we know people probably don't need, and they're not getting the nutrition, especially protein, that they really do need. And I think that there's one other factor in there, which actually goes back to the early history of the guidelines. So we have this mistaken belief that there was the dietary goals, and then three years later, boom, 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 the dietary guidelines came out and that was it. But we forget that in 1980, there was another powerful um, document written by the most prestigious nutrition group in um, our country, the Food and Nutrition Board of the Institutes of Medicine, and they came out with a document called Toward Healthful Diets. And it was in competition with the dietary guidelines. I mean, those two kind of went head to head in a cage match for which was going to be our national dietary policy. And Toward Healthful Diets basically said two things, eat a variety of foods, so that's the adequate essential nutrition part, And the other thing that they said was, um, you know, eat a diet that doesn't make you gain weight. Now, for some people, that might be a low-fat, low-calorie diet. For other people, that might be a low-carb diet. They didn't say which was better. Hmm. They just said, eat a diet that doesn't make you gain weight. So the dietary guidelines actually ended up winning that contest for a number of reasons, none of which had to do with science. But... I think those two factors toward healthful diets are still important. You need adequate essential nutrition and you need a diet that doesn't make you gain weight. And if you find that you're gaining weight, eating a low fat, low calorie, high carbohydrate diet, like I did, like many other people who visit the Diet Doctor site did, who did experience that, and we know that we're not crazy, it did happen to us, that that diet is just simply not the right one for us. So, there are two things that we have to pay attention to in terms of a diet. One, adequate essential nutrition. Two, metabolic health. That's the don't gain weight part. And your diet, whatever your diet is, should give you both of those things. I think that's all we need to say.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Now, you mentioned weight gain and metabolic health in sort of the same statement. So, um, this is another issue that comes up time and time again, that is the problem, the weight gain or is the problem the metabolic health? Are they always related? And does it help us or hurt us to focus on one or the other? Um, so what do you, what's your take on yeah. that?
1: Yeah, that, this is a very, very tangled web. And um, we like to focus on obesity. And I would say that we like to focus on obesity for some reasons that are very superficial. It's easy to measure. But also we can look at people and we can tell that they have not been eating right by looking at them. So, um, it allows people. So this goes back to that idea of you're responsible for your own health. I can tell by looking at someone who has a high body mass and I can think in my superior brain, Oh, you didn't eat the way you were supposed to. And notice that both low fat folks and low carb folks do that. You'll hear the low fat folks going, Oh, see, look, eating your low carb diet and look at you, you don't, you, your, your BMI is over 40. But you'll also hear people who are low carbers go, well, you know, if you just cut out those carbs, you'd lose all that weight. Neither of those statements is true. You cannot look at people and tell how they eat, how much they exercise or what their metabolic health is. Although <laughs> if somebody is carrying a lot of excess adipose tissue, It's a pretty safe bet, simply because there's a lot of correlation that they have poor metabolic health. It doesn't necessarily mean they do, but it's a good bet. But then the question is, did the obesity cause them poor metabolic health, or did the poor metabolic health cause the obesity? Well, I think we actually do know the answer to that, and that's poor metabolic health causes obesity. It precedes obesity. It precedes sedentary behavior people don't get fat and then develop metabolic disease. And we know this um, from the, from the verte trials, I think are, are one of the best experiments, but any low carb nutritionist or doctor knows that they can put their patient on a reduced carb diet, get the carbs out of their system and start taking them off of medications. And the patient will report feeling better before they've lost any, significant amount of weight.
0: Yeah, and there was I a, saw it all the There was an intervention trial um, with Drs. Krauss and Dr. Finney and Volick that showed without any weight loss, low-carb still improved metabolic health. Now, part of the problem though is when we look at older studies about this is how you define metabolic health because usually it's either the presence or absence of diabetes, which is far too superficial and not even close to how we should be defining metabolic health, which makes it, which makes it much harder, I think, to say we we know for sure which one precedes the other. But I think we can say it makes sense which one we should target first as an intervention, that weight loss without metabolic health improvement is not winning any goals, but metabolic health improvement without weight loss is still likely improving your overall outlook. This seems like a fair statement that most people shouldn't be able to argue with. Would you agree?
1: Yes, and and obesity was problematic before it became associated with metabolic health, but it was problematic for orthopedic reasons. And I remember seeing these folks in clinic, too. Um, In terms of their um, metabolism, they usually had fairly normal blood pressure, normal blood sugars, etc. But they had hip problems, knee problems, joint problems in their feet right? And they needed to lose weight for orthopedic reasons. So obesity has always been problematic for that reason. But it wasn't until, you know, just in the, you know, since the I think mid-century um, of, of the previous century that we started associating obesity with poor health. And that had a lot to do with those um, insurance um, actuarial studies. But again, there's no causal arrow. And this is another thing I think that isn't well understood, that predictive risk factors and causal risk factors aren't the same thing. So just because a risk factor predicts that a person has a certain condition um, does not mean that that risk factor is causal.
0: Right, association is not causation for sure. That's something that we need to hammer home again and again and again, um...
1: well, the word risk factor" because it has the word risk in it, I think that we think oh you're taking a risk if you're obese, not I mean maybe, but not necessarily it's like um, like with Pegra, poverty was a risk factor for getting mm. Pelegra, but some people thought that was because of the poor sanitation conditions, and other people thought it was because of the poor diet but so poor sanitation was also predictive of getting pellagra, but you could wash your hands all you wanted and you'd still get pellagra if you had a bad diet. So just because poor sanitation was a risk factor doesn't mean it was a causal risk factor.
0: Right. So, and you
1: need to keep that in mind.
0: And so now, though, during the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic, this has become a very important topic because obesity has been linked to worsening outcomes type 2 diabetes and hyperglycemia linked to worsening outcomes. Does it cause the worsening outcomes? Is there something else? We don't know, but when it's all the information you have, you sort of have to, you feel obligated to act upon it to say let's try and control these things as much as possible. But we don't have evidence saying if you control your blood sugar, if you lower your weight, you're going to reduce your risk of complications of COVID-19. But sort of... You could you fault anybody for saying you should try to reduce your risk?
1: Well, I I like the way you said it, Brett. The you should try and reduce your risk for overall good health, not because of COVID. Um, It just makes sense to. But the idea of 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 insisting that somebody should go on a strict diet, whether it's a low calorie or a low carb one, in the middle of what might be the most stressful event of their lives, I think is I think it's a very privileged and very narrow perspective.
0: But to say that this time in our country's history shows the importance of metabolic health over the long run and hopefully will help us focus on that, maybe so the next set of infections or, you know, the next even influenza or the next pandemic or whatever the case may be, that we are just we as a country can be in better shape to withstand it if our metabolic health is better, and that's just one right. example of how metabolic health can help you. Um, exactly. But it shows how sometimes the line is blurred between association and causation. That it's important to to differentiate between them, but sometimes if it's all you have, you have to act upon it, which is a slippery slope because that's also what sort of got a lot of the low fat message propagated, which we now have evidence to show is not the case.
1: Absolutely. And this is, I think this is my worst nightmare is that, um, you know, 50 years from now, people will look at our era and go, oh, you know, these low carb folks, they just recapitulated the mistakes of the low fat people and they made things worse instead of better. And and I really do have a fear of that. I mean, do I want low-carb guidelines? I do not, because I don't want them to be misused the same way that the low-fat guidelines were misused. And they were misused. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want low-carb to belong to clinicians. I want it to belong to diet doctor. I want it to belong to the people. I don't want it to be defined by or administered by the government, and I certainly don't want it to be defined by and administered by food corporations, which is, you know, extremely problematic. Because who knows? The food, um, our our food system works like this. Anytime you tug on one part of the food system, you get reactions throughout it. One of my favorite stories about the low fat diet is the, you've heard of buffalo wings, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. heard of buffalo wings. Um, Low carb folks love them. They're, you know, you got lots of fat and stuff and um, dip them in blue cheese and they're great. Well, the the folks who invented buffalo wings tried to create like a national snack fad back in the early seventies, but they couldn't get wings off of chickens. The producers wouldn't give them to them because when you sold a chicken, you would either sold it whole with the wings attached or you sold it in quarters with a leg and a thigh and a breast and a wing attached. When the low fat craze came through, we started selling boneless, skinless chicken breasts because uh. those were the lowest in fat. And all of a sudden, what happened? There were the excess of wings. So all of a sudden, these folks who wanted to have these um, you know, fatty wing outlets, these, these uh, buffalo wing joints, could do them. So when you look at the food system, you go, well, there didn't used to be these fried wings on every corner. Well, those were created literally created by boneless, skinless chicken breasts by the low fat craze. So the low fat diet created a bunch of high fat products, premium ice cream, extra cheesy, cheesy pizza. That's the fat that gets skimmed off of milk and then sold through another production line. So what's going to happen? I wonder sometimes if that happens with low carb, if it, if it becomes part of mass produced foods and it tugs on those strings in the food system. I really like the fact that when I see low carb products being sold, I look for those tiny producers, people like, I think it's, it's Tro's wife. She has a little baked goods um, line that you can you know, and it's it's very small, it's very family-centered, you know what's going into those packages, and it's not a great big corporate monster, just, you know, moving the parts of the food around. Yeah. And I would like to see more of that, and I don't want it to be part of what the government is telling us how to eat.
0: Yeah, it's another big lesson, I think, of the, of the whole COVID-19 pandemic is um, the importance of Local food supply, rather than a few big national producers, because once that once they weaken in the chain, then the whole system can fall apart. And our system, our food system, cannot be reliant on that. But if we could be reliant more yep. on the mom and pop, on the local butcher, on the local farmer, um, that makes a huge difference. And hopefully, there'll be more of a push for that—a decentralization of the of the whole food um, atmosphere, I guess. Um,
1: and you know, believe it or not. McGovern's committee was pushing for that too, really? right along with the dietary goals. Yeah. I actually I, I happen to have this out because I was looking something up. But it's guidelines for food purchasing in the United States. This was the sister volume that was supposed to be released after the dietary goals. It was written by Nick Modern, who is always just, you know, badmouthed because he created the dietary goals. And it's about these smaller circles and buying locally and buying from a food co-op and buying from local farms. So A lot of what was politically in the dietary goals was really pushing for that kind of food system, but it got it got co opted. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah, Um, and that report never got released, unfortunately.
0: Right. Well, I I love that story about the buffalo wings Um, um, (laughs) and Super Bowls. What was Super Bowl Sunday like before before there were buffalo wings? I I don't know what what it could possibly have had roast
1: chicken, I guess. (laughs) Well,
0: there. So there are other. there are other myths that you that you have been vocal about that saying that we, we have to stand up against. And um, I want to just touch on a couple of those if we can. And one is vegetable oils. Vegetable oils, studies clearly show mechanistically that vegetable oils under extreme heat can become oxidative and rancid and, and cause mutations in cell cultures and from a mechanistic standpoint. So, because of that, there is a big push to avoid all vegetable oils. But when you look at the clinical data on humans and whether it's epidemiological or randomized controlled trials, it doesn't seem to to replicate what the mechanistic studies are. So Diet Doctor King has had a little bit of pushback by saying, you know, basically saying the evidence of vegetable oils kind of isn't there for it being harmful. So how how do you help people kind of understand that message when the mechanisms say one thing, but other evidence maybe doesn't back that up?
1: Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a biochem fan, and I love mechanistic studies, and I actually think that they're far more um, informative than a lot of epidemiological studies, because those just tell us what people think is healthy. They don't really tell us, and and we don't know (laughs) what what people are actually eating, since it's a food survey anyway. Um, So, I think mechanistic studies are actually really important, but it doesn't help us put things in perspective in terms of our physiology. And what you end up doing, I think, so what we I think about this from a dietitian's point of view, are you creating unnecessary food fears? And are you making things difficult for people by telling them completely avoid vegetable oils because they're very scary? I know that when I went on a low carb diet, this wasn't something that was talked about. And I also know That when I went on a low carb diet, I had three young children. And if somebody had told me that I had to make my salad dressing at home and I couldn't use the stuff in the grocery store because it had corn oil in it or soybean oil in it, that I wouldn't have bothered going on a low carb diet to begin with. I would have just said, This is not the diet for me. I won't do it. I'll have to find some other way to lose weight. Um, So I think we have to really be careful with generating food fear. In fact, I think this is another one of the really pernicious. Outcomes of the dietary guidelines. It's made us afraid of the things in our food, whether it's fat or whether it's carbs. We've we've learned to just be afraid of things. We see it on a label. Um, the gluten uh, thing a couple of years back was so informative because people stopped buying things that said, I mean, started buying things that said gluten free. Right before they even knew what gluten was. We did the same thing with cholesterol. People started buying foods that said cholesterol free before they even knew what cholesterol was. We could make a food and say asbestos free and people would buy it without even wondering what asbestos is. Of course it's not in there, it's never been in there. And and we do this with sugar, we do this with carbs, we do this with everything because we've taught people to be afraid of food. And what we need to do is to teach people how to think critically about what they're being told about food. Is the two tablespoons of vegetable oil in your salad dressing going to cause you long-term harm? We have no idea. Is it gonna cause you um, temporary harm to have to um, make make your salad dressing from scratch every time you wanna eat it? Does that mean you'll eat less vegetables? If you have to make your own homemade salad dressing, yeah, maybe. So that to me, that's that's a real concern. You know, am I going to get in the way of somebody eating a healthy food? Because in order for them to eat a healthy food, like if you pour yeah. some vegetable oil salad dressing on your salad, does it suck all the rest of the healthy ingredients out? <laughs> you know, it doesn't. So let it let it be. Yeah. So I, I think we really you have to help people not be afraid of food.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to say eat whole foods, eat natural foods, make it as minimally processed as simple as possible. That's a great policy that everybody should follow as much as they can follow it. And then then you get into the specifics of what works in your life and what doesn't and what the logistics work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So one one last thing then for mechanisms versus clinical practice and clinical experience too much protein is going to kick you out of ketosis. right We hear that <laughs> we, we hear that not infrequently that some that people have this personal experience but the science doesn't seem to back up that that is a true phenomenon that happens for most people is that is that right?
1: Yeah and um, and first of all, you have to say, well why are you tracking your ketone levels that closely? Um, do you have a specific reason for doing that? Like if you're trying to prevent seizures, um, yeah, that's probably really important for you. And maybe you need to follow a classic ketogenic diet that's used for epilepsy. And absolutely, you want to watch the amount of protein um, because you have to balance that off with a certain amount of fat. But I think in most cases, we're talking about people who wanna lose weight and who think that they're eating too much protein And I think it's a very complicated scenario when you get into those details because we know, in fact, um, we were talking about this just recently, that women often prefer diets that have more fat and more carbs in them. They're not big protein eaters to begin with. And also women have trouble losing weight and women who are postmenopausal especially have trouble losing weight. So we're talking about a bunch of things sort of piling up there. But if you tell a postmenopausal woman, guess what? You can eat all the fat you want, just add artificial sweetener to it, but natural artificial sweetener, you know, monk fruit or erythritol or one of the approved keto sweeteners to it. You can have all the fat you want and, and make it as sweet as you need to with one of these natural sweeteners and just eat all of that and don't worry about eating a yucky pork chop. And then the woman wonders why she's not losing weight. Well you know, she's not going to lose weight. One, her body's going to be starved for protein. It's going to be scavenging muscle. She's going to um, eventually, over time, begin to lose muscle mass. If she keeps it up, she'll lose bone mass because muscles tugging on bone is what keeps bone healthy. Um, Protein also is a matrix for bone. And and, and if she's eating a low-protein diet because she thinks that all she needs to eat to lose weight is fat, 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 it's going to be counterproductive in the long run, but it'll taste better. Maybe I don't know. It'll be more fun, but it, it won't be good for our health.
0: Yeah, another another good example of how a how a um, experimental study clearly shows that a lot a lot of protein, excessive protein, can raise insulin and can raise glucose. But then the the harder part is translating that to clinical science, translating that to the person you're working with in front of you. Where not eating enough protein, especially as we age, is likely a much bigger issue for most people. And so, right. yeah. Okay. And
1: we do know that people who are overweight or obese, who are in poor metabolic health, benefit from larger amounts of protein rather than smaller amounts. Um, we, there are studies that show that, there are RCTs that show that. So it's not like that's really a question, but if somebody eats a steak for dinner and then measures their ketone levels an hour later and goes, oh, no, I'm not in ketosis anymore, you can't deny that experience either. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is that experience meaningful in terms of their overall health? It And I think it 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 depends on how low that protein gets and how much they're avoiding it. Yeah.
0: Well, another great example of how you analyze things so well and so critically to make sure we're understanding what it means and not to accept things at face value. And I, I appreciate that you have been the voice for that, so really, it, which is not always a popular voice, like you've gotten some pushback because of it. And um, you're, you're a, hu- a very important part of the low-carb message in the low-carb world, but yet sometimes you're seen critically because you're that voice. And it... Doesn't faze you. Brushes right off your shoulder because what's more important is getting the message right to you. And I really appreciate that. Your your integrity of the of your message is is so clear and that speaks a lot to who you are. So thank you for for making your voice heard.
1: Well, and and thanks for giving me this opportunity because it is my dream that everyone is offered the option of a low carb diet when they need it. And I do think that if we want to be accepted into the mainstream, which is the only path. Through which people who are disenfranchised, people who are not, don't have the resources that other folks do. It's the only way that they are going to get this option is to have low carb accepted as a therapy in mainstream. And if we want that to happen, we need to have all of our ducks in a row. And if I have to be unpopular to do that, so be it. It's not for me.
0: It's for them. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, where can people hear more about you learn more about what you've read and learn more about you?
1: Well, you can find my uh, much neglected blog site, eatthropology.com, or you can just look me up on Diet Doctor. I'm pretty busy there too.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you, Adele.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Brenda. This was fun.